Welcome back to Talk and Trade, the podcast where we explore the ins and outs of Section 337 investigations at the U.S. International Trade Commission. I'm Matt Rizzolo, and with me today are my fellow Ropes and Gray IP attorneys, Matt Shapiro, Brendan McLaughlin, and Becca Gentili. How's everybody doing today? Doing well. Really well, Thanks, Matt. All right. Great to have everyone here. So with today's episode, we set out to finish our three-part series focusing on what happens after the commission finds a violation of Section 337. Specifically today, we're going to do an overview of the enforcement of exclusion orders by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. In my experience, this is an area of ITC practice that is very much overlooked. And it's a great mystery to many litigants and even their attorneys. As we'll talk about, the processes and procedures behind this have changed significantly over the last several years. And all of this, I think, makes a, a great topic to wrap up our three-episode arc here on ITC Remedies. But before we get into that, Brennan, what's new at the Commission? Thanks, Matt. Before jumping into what's new at the Commission, we should first cover what's new at the Federal Circuit, as the court has issued a few ITC-related decisions since our last episode. First, in DBN Holdings v. ITC, Federal Circuit affirmed a commission determination not to rescind or modify a $6 million civil penalty that had been issued for violation of a consent order between the parties, even though the patent underlying the consent order was subsequently invalidated by a district court. The Federal Circuit affirmed on appeal, reasoning that a consent order has attributes of both a contract and a judicial decree, and that, in this case, the consent order only provided for invalidation to operate prospectively. Invalidation, in other words, would not alter any breach of the consent order that had previously occurred. The Federal Circuit also found no error in the Commission's assessment that the EPROMS factors did not independently require recession or modification. Second, in Broadcom VITC, the Federal Circuit held that the complainant failed to satisfy the tech prong of the DI requirement because the system on chip component it relied on did not practice every claim limitation and Broadcom failed to identify an actual patent practicing product. The court also affirmed the ITC's rejection of Broadcom's related attempt to shift its DI theory. This serves as a cautionary tale to make sure your DI theory is sound even before filing a complaint. Finally, in Mahindra and Mahindra VITC, the Federal Circuit issued a Rule 36 judgment affirming the Commission's findings that Mahindra infringed FCA's Jeep trade dress in the underlying 1132 investigation. Turning away from the Federal Circuit to the Commission, there have been just three new Section 337 complaints filed since our last episode, but the Commission has instituted nine new investigations, three of which are based on complaints filed by Erickson. And finally, the commission and its ALJs have issued several interesting new opinions. In the 1237 investigation, the commission affirmed the ALJ's finding that PGR estoppel casts a really long shadow. While IPR estoppel applies to grounds based on patents and printed publications, the commission found that PGR estoppel applies to any ground since any invalidity ground, including those based on physical products or system art, may be brought before the PTAB in a PGR proceeding. The commission affirmed this decision in view of the recent Federal Circuit precedent regarding IPR estoppel. Now, while the ground has not settled for PGR estoppel, um, if other courts follow the ITC's leads, lead, this could reduce the number of PGR filings even further. You can read more about this decision in our colleague Scott McCune's excellent patentspostgrant.com blog. 
Turning to the 129 investigation, there the commission affirmed the ALJ's findings that respondent violated section 337 and issued an LEO and a CDO. This opinion appears to represent the first time in several years where the commission has substantively discussed uh, patent eligibility under section 101 at length, finding the claims that it should be patent eligible. In 1221, the commission affirmed the ALJ's finding that the complainant failed to satisfy the econ prong of the DI requirement. Notably, the commission found that complainant erred in how it addressed, how it attempted to aggregate its investments across all of the DI products for each asserted patent. The commission went as far as to say under the facts of that investigation, aggregating investments in different DI products that practice different patents effectively precludes the commission from quantifying the amounts of the investments in each statutory category and determining the significance of complainants' investments with respect to each of the asserted patents. So since the majority of investigations similarly include multiple patents and multiple DI products, this opinion should serve as a warning for future complainants trying to satisfy the DI requirement. And finally, uh, the commission issued a notice of review in the 1210 investigation asking the parties to brief a total of 17 DI-related questions. But for those of us who are looking forward to seeing the commission dive into these DI-related questions in greater detail, um, just about a week after the notice issued, the party settled. Taking a second to uh, take all that in, Matt, do you have any further thoughts? And my first thought is you should get a drink of water. Um, I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> going back to the, the first case you mentioned, that DBN case, I think it's really interesting because it showcases the power of the commission and the, the steep consequences if you disobey or flout its orders. I mean, even though those patents were found invalid, um, that was irrelevant. You know, once the orders were issued, you know, that if you violated them, you know, you're going to have to pay a penalty. So that, that applies to consent orders as well as other orders such as cease and desist orders. So litigants should watch out for that in the future. And I, uh, you know, the, the 1210 investigation, those DI questions show that domestic industry is still an issue that a lot of commissioners are grappling with. And it's very much a topic of discussion. So I expect that we'll see other lengthy notices review in, in some future cases. So with that, let's turn to our main topic for today, which, as I mentioned, is a, a deeper dive into Customs and Border Protections, or CBP's, enforcement of exclusion orders. Matt, we know that Customs will exclude future shipments of the product that was actually litigated in an ITC proceeding, and they'll exclude them from ports of entry once the Commission issues an exclusion order. But what happens if a company wants to import a new or redesigned product, one that wasn't actually adjudicated by the ITC in the underlying Section 337 investigation? You know, what if, what if the company believes that its new product is not infringing? Will those products still be subject to exclusion? Well, unfortunately, Matt, I'm going to have to give you perhaps the most basic lawyer answer, and that is it depends. Uh, customs here will have to make an independent determination as to whether the unadjudicated product falls within the scope of the exclusion order. In other words, whether the product infringes the patent. So why don't you walk us through when and how Customs makes that determination? Uh, first, it's important to note that Customs is not willing to accept self-certification of non-infringement. 
An importer can't simply say to customs, this is a redesigned product that does not infringe, unless that specific product was actually adjudicated at the ITC. A would-be importer is left with two main pathways to obtain customs review of unadjudicated products. First, an importer can just import the product at risk of potential exclusion by customs. Customs may detain and inspect the product, and if it does, it must decide within 30 days whether to allow the product into the country as non-infringing or exclude it pursuant to the exclusion order. If customs rules to exclude the product, the importer can protest its decision under 19 CFR Part 174. This is called a protest for short. And if the protest is unsuccessful, appeal to the Court of International Trade. But in the meantime, customs may notify the ITC of the exclusion and the ITC may issue a seizure and forfeiture order allowing any future imports to be seized by customs rather than simply excluded. So you may get a ruling quickly, but the ruling isn't necessarily binding on customs as to the importation of future products. And if that ruling goes against you, there can be serious consequences. Yeah, it's for this reason that importing at risk, so to speak, is pretty risky, as you uh, might infer from the name. But there are things that an importer can do in the meantime to help customs in making its determination on infringement, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this can start even before the underlying ITC case is wrapped up. Typically, a representative from customs will reach out to the parties a month or two in advance of any potential exclusion order. Whether you're complaining or responding, it's a best practice to take customs up on the offer so that you can explain the issues from the client side of the dispute. If an exclusion order ultimately issues, it's often a good idea to provide customs with additional information showing how they can distinguish infringing products from non-infringing products, you know, whether that's by inspection of the products themselves or testing, and generally make customs enforcement job kind of as easy as possible. These conversations and communications can take place ex parte, and you want to try to anticipate what your opponent is telling customs. That's right. An open dialogue and helpful information are both key. But the last thing you want is for customs to mistakenly detain some of your products and disrupt your business in the interim. So Becca, Matt mentioned two options. What's the other option that an importer has to get customs view on whether a product falls within the scope of an exclusion order? As a safer, but potentially more time-consuming and expensive proposition, an importer can seek a pre-importation ruling from customs under 19 CFR Part 177 in what's known as a Part 177 proceeding. It used to be that these were conducted just between the importer and customs, but a few years ago, customs modified its regulations to allow inter-partis adjudication of these rulings with participation by both parties. A Part 177 proceeding allows the importer to obtain certainty from customs that the product it is seeking to import is not subject to an exclusion order. However, if customs rules against the importer, or if it fails to issue any ruling at all, the importer's avenues for relief are limited. It can only appeal to the CIT if it can demonstrate irreparable harm in the absence of judicial review. So let's focus on Part 177 proceedings for a minute. How do you request a ruling from customs prior to importation? Well, Part 177 provides for custom to 
give full and careful consideration to written requests from importers and other interested parties for rulings or information setting forth with respect to a specifically described transaction, a definitive interpretation of applicable law or other appropriate information. So the first step is to submit a written request to customs asking for a ruling respecting the unadjudicated products. This is typically in the form of a letter and should include whatever information and arguments you think customs may need to make its determination. Yeah, this is a really important step and I can't emphasize that strongly enough. You must, absolutely must formally request a ruling in order to preserve the right to appeal if you receive an adverse determination. The Court of International Trade won't hesitate to reject it if, if you forget to make a written request for a decision. Becca, you mentioned that a Part 177 proceeding is, is now an inter partes proceeding. How does CBP conduct those proceedings? As I previously mentioned, the inter partes procedure under Part 177 is relatively new, with both the importer as well as the complainant in the ITC case as parties to the proceeding. Each party can submit its arguments and evidence to support the importation or exclusion of the articles in question. In effect, this becomes like somewhat of a mini ITC investigation, except the issues are narrowed significantly to whether the new product is within the scope of the exclusion order and infringes the intellectual property at issue. This enables customs to render a decision based on a fully developed record, but practically, it prohibits customs from communicating with either party individually during the pendency of the part 177 proceeding. And when you're talking about customs here, you're specifically referring to the exclusion order enforcement branch of customs, right? Who, who are they exactly and what do they do? As with part 177 proceedings, customs exclusion order enforcement branch or EOE for short is relatively new to customs. It has the authority to adjudicate issues relating to the administration of exclusion orders. And EOE is who will decide the procedural schedule for the part 177 proceeding and eventually issue the ruling letter stating whether or not the new product is subject to the exclusion order. They have significant power under customs rules and regulations. Currently, Dax Terrell is the chief of the branch. You mentioned one aspect of this that I'd like to backtrack to for a second, the procedural schedule. Um, we know that ITC investigations are fast paced, but Matt, what about part 177 proceedings? Do they go quickly? Well, if you think ITC investigations are quick, they are nothing compared to part 177 proceedings, which on average take around four months to complete. Now compare that to 17 months to the target date of a typical ITC investigation, or frankly, years for a district court case. That's really fast. I'm sure, these proceedings are more limited in scope than a full-fledged ITC investigation, but they can still involve some complex time-consuming issues that would necessitate a mini discovery period. For example, the most common issue is infringement, which may require an in-depth review of the subject products, including an analysis of their operation, fact testimony, in the form of depositions, and even source code review. The parties may also submit expert declarations to explain the technology and offer opinions on infringement. The EOE in some situations, and this is where it really gets interesting, might consider issues that the ITC never touched during the investigation. For example, the EOE has authority to construe a claim 
that the parties did not dispute during the investigation, but that is highly relevant to the new product at issue. And the parties can even advance new infringement theories for the first time before customs. And all of this must be accomplished within the confines of the procedural schedule that's decided by the EOE at the outset. And this may lead to some variability in the length of the schedule for a particular proceeding. So pausing on that for a moment, it's important to note that while EOE may decide issues of infringement and even claim construction, it will not decide uh, patent invalidity theories. Customs does not have authority to find a patent invalid. So let's say that the exclusion order enforcement branch sets the procedural schedule and the mini discovery period comes to a close. What then? Well, typically you then enter uh, a phase of briefing. The responding party will file uh, a response to the initial ruling letter, citing evidence from the mini discovery period. The ruling letter requester can then file a reply and the responding party can file a surreply. In some cases, but certainly not in all instances, the briefing period will end with oral argument. And after the briefing period or oral argument, if there is one, the proceeding is effectively entered. The parties then wait for customs ruling letter, which is essentially a thumbs up or thumbs down. Either the requester may import the products or it may not import the products. And as should be apparent from this discussion, a part 177 proceeding is really a targeted investigation as to specific products. Does CBP actually need to issue a ruling letter in all cases? I mean, what, what happens if they never act on the request? Customs cannot delay forever. After a certain period of time, you can appeal a refusal to issue a ruling directly to the Court of International Trade, just as if you had received an adverse determination. All right, so then let's move on in the process. Let's assume that Customs either doesn't issue a ruling or that it issues a ruling that's adverse to you. What happens next? Well, this is where things get a little complicated. After an adverse ruling, in cases where it has or has not issued a ruling letter, a requester can appeal directly to the Court of International Trade. Unlike in the protest context, there is no need to exhaust your administrative remedies under Part 177 and follow through the protest process. As we discussed earlier, however, by statute, the Court of International Trade will only judicially review the ruling if you show that you would be irreparably harmed unless given an opportunity to obtain judicial review prior to such importation. In other words, review is not guaranteed as a matter of right. And as we know from other contexts, irreparable harm can often be very hard to show. Uh, Brendan, how would you prove here that you would suffer irreparable harm in the absence of judicial review? So the test here is the same as the test courts apply in determining whether to issue a preliminary injunction or a temporary restraining order. So allegations of financial harm, the unavailability of any other means for prospective relief, the possibility of delay, or the futility of importation in light of the ruling determination wouldn't be sufficient to establish irreparable harm. Um, instead, your best bet is to focus on something beyond monetary loss. For example, courts sometimes found irreparable damages in the face of evidence of price erosion, loss of goodwill, damage to reputation, or loss of business opportunities. Uh, your, your chances of success thus significantly improve if you can establish one of these conditions. But uh, that success is never guaranteed. What happens if you're actually able to establish irreparable harm? 
In that case, then the Court of International Trade will review the decision as normal, applying the same standards that it would apply in an appeal uh, of a Part 174 ruling or protest. And what happens if you fail to establish irreparable harm? Uh, you're stuck. Uh, you're stuck with customs rulings. And if you want to challenge it, you'll need to try to import the product, wait for customs to exclude it, and then protest and appeal in accordance with the first pathway, as discussed by Matt earlier. Okay, well, shifting focus, we, we spent some time discussing the role of customs, but are there any other options available to either patentees or importers pre-importation? Well, your other option is to bypass customs entirely and seek relief from the commission. We could probably do a whole episode or perhaps multiple episodes on the commission options available to patentees and importers after the violation phase. And we may actually do that and add a fourth or possibly even a fifth episode to this series. But for now, let me just give you a quick overview. Your main options as an importer before the commission are to request modification of the exclusion order to expressly exempt the previously unadjudicated products or to request an advisory opinion from the ITC that a particular product or products are not within the scope of the exclusion order. On the other hand, as a patent holder, your primary remedy at the commission is to request that the ITC institute an enforcement proceeding, which may result in civil penalties, like the kind issued in the DBN case that we discussed at the beginning of the episode. And these, these proceedings are generally known as ancillary proceedings. And unfortunately, given how long we've been going, I think we're going to have to leave a more detailed discussion of these for a future episode, unless we go on for a whole hour here. Now, I'll note that Importers can and often do use both routes in parallel. You know, they may file a Part 177 proceeding at Customs and pair that with a request for an advisory opinion or a modification proceeding at the ITC. And Matt, that actually raises an interesting question about possible other routes. Can a district court ever get involved? Once again, Matt, and I'm going to return to, I think, my first answer on the episode, the same lawyer answer of, well, it depends. An importer does remain free to file an action for declaratory judgment of non-infringement against the patent owner in a district court in the rare instance where there wasn't already a parallel case filed by the complainant. But even if the district court case hasn't been stayed, the option will likely do little to remedy the exclusion in the short term because customs would not be a party to the suit. If you're instead hoping to get an order compelling customs to undertake any action, well then no, a district court can't do that. While few courts have addressed this issue, two courts have categorically refused to get involved in a party's dispute with customs over excluded merchandise. And Brendan, I know you've looked at these, these cases. Can you give a quick overview of them? Yeah, sure. Uh, the first one is Workin v. United States. There, Workin filed an action in the DDC challenging the exclusion of its machines under an LEO. The court dismissed the action for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, concluding that the Tariff Act commits claims related to an exclusion decision to the commission with appeal to the federal circuit or to the court of international trade, but not to the district courts. The second one is Kirtan USA, the uh, CBP. In that case, Kirtan filed suit in the Western District of Washington, seeking to enjoin customs from excluding future shipments of his agricultural equipment as illegal drug paraphernalia. 
The court determined that it lacked subject matter jurisdiction over Kirtan's claims because Congress intended to preclude district court jurisdiction when it created the protest system. And Kirtan's claim was of the type meant to be reviewed within the statutory scheme. Thanks, Brendan. The uh, construction of the enforcement of exclusion orders by customs, even though that they are issued by a different agency, really creates some interesting issues of administrative law that, that could keep a lot of attorneys busy and clients frustrated. And with that, that's all the time we have for this episode of Talk of Trade. Stay tuned for next time when uh, I guess we'll talk about modification, advisory, and enforcement proceedings. You can find this podcast and other Ropes and Gray podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or ropesgray.com slash podcasts. I'm Matt Rizzolo, and on behalf of Matt Shapiro, Brendan McLaughlin, and Becca Gentili, thank you all for listening.